Bibles out to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. In last week's sermon, we learned a lot about the book of Philippians in our introduction. We saw the author of the book. We saw the date and location of the writing, the purpose and occasion of the letter, the historical background, and so much more. And this week, we're going to go even deeper. In this week's sermon, we're going to learn about the local church at Philippi. Why the local church? Why not the universal church? church? Well, the answer is simple. It's because this letter is written to a local church. It's not written to the universal church, but to the church at Philippi. With that in mind, this morning's sermon is going to, through the lens of verse 1b and 2, explore the anatomy of the local church. Let's read those verses together. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. God, as we begin to dig into your word this morning, what we need more than any thing else is for you to speak to us. In addition, we need to listen to you. We need to be able to hear your words. So God, we pray that through me you will speak clearly, that you will take anything out of my mouth that is not from you, that is not directly derived from your word. And we pray that you will pull anything out of the hearts of your saints this morning that may be keeping them from being active listeners, joyful listeners, ready listeners. Lord God, we can only do our part this morning by your grace, and we know that we have it in Christ Jesus. And so we rejoice to let you speak your word of truth to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one. The saints. The local church is primarily composed of saints. Now, according to the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, there are four steps to becoming a saint. First, you have to die. That's actually not the first step. That's just what you have to do to start the first four steps. Once you've been dead for five years... The process can begin with step one, a request for sainthood is submitted to the local bishop, who then begins a more local investigation into the candidate's life and doctrine. If it is deemed that the candidate is worthy of further consideration, the Vatican will grant the candidate the official title of servant of God. Step two. A postulator, or the devil's advocate, will step in and argue against the servant of God, trying to prove that he or she doesn't really qualify for sainthood. But if he passes this examination, the candidate will then 
be called the venerable. Step three, the venerable is uh, put through the gauntlet for the title of beatification, wherein the candidate must be proved to have either A, died as a martyr for the faith, or B, to have performed a miracle through the process of intercession. Not in the life of the saint, but after the saint's passing, can it be proven that somebody prayed to that person, and then that person then performed a miracle from heaven on their behalf? If this can be proven, the person is beatified. The person is officially given the title of blessed, which leads to step four, canonization, to be included in the canon or the official list of saints. Now, this can only happen uh, after there is proof of a second miracle, and this second miracle must take place after beatification, so after step three. Now, the Pope may waive these requirements, obviously, he's the Pope, but that is the next requirement. Once the second miracle has been proven, the Pope officially declares this candidate to be a saint. Now, here is my question for you. Is that what Paul has in mind in verse 1 when he addresses the saints at Philippi? Is he here referring to the long-dead miracle workers who have been bureaucratically vetted to receive their halos? Well, of course not. So what is Paul referring to here when he, as he opens up his letter to the Philippians, refers to them as saints? Well, simply put, a saint is a holy one. It's actually not that complicated. A saint is someone who has been set apart, who has been consecrated to God's holy service, right? You think about different kinds of plates you have in your home. You have the most base common plates, the paper plates, right? You come over to my house for dinner, that's probably what you're going to get. Then you have the nicer dinner plates, right, that you might have, uh, you know, just feeling a little fancy. But then you have the china, right? Your grandma probably had the china in the cabinet, right? Nobody ever gets to touch the china. The china is holy. It's set apart for a very special purpose. In my house, it was my mom's towels in the bathroom, you know, don't touch the guest towels. That's us. We're the guest towels is what I'm saying. Put that on YouTube. In all seriousness, we have been set apart for our service to God and the gospel. That's what makes us saints, and it's a really big deal. It's a really important job. It's a very weighty responsibility. Even though anyone who is a Christian is a saint, it's still a very significant title. So the question really is, how do you get to be a saint? If you don't go through this four-step process as outlined by the Roman Catholic Church, then how do you become a saint? Well, you become a saint by grace through faith. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Save your place in Philippians. Turn back a few books. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. 
Paul says it like this to the Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. Now th- that language of washing and sanctification, that's the language of holiness. So do you see the contrast? He says there are all these people here who aren't going to go to be with God forever in heaven. They're unrighteous. They're not holy. They haven't been made clean by God. They've been made unclean by their sin. In contrast, you, you used to be unclean, but you have been made clean. You've been made holy. You've been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What you see here is that sanctification, being made holy, is a gift that is given to us in grace. More on that in a minute. But I think uh, maybe a more lengthy definition of a saint that we can pull from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is something like this. Saints are unholy people who have been made holy by a God who is holy for holy purposes. Unholy people made holy by a holy God for his holy purposes. That's you. That's me. This church is full of saints. 83 by my count the last time I checked. We are all in the canon. Now, if you're here this morning and you're new to Christianity or you're trying to explore the gospel and you're trying to understand the ins and outs of the faith, you might be thinking... There's just something about that word. It could never be me. I could never be a saint. And you're right. You don't have what it takes to be a holy one of God, and and neither do I, and neither does any member of this church, neither does anyone else in the world. We don't have it in ourselves to be set apart for God's holy purposes. And in order to show you that, I just want you don't have to turn there. Just listen, Exodus chapter 19, God is talking to the nation of Israel, his chosen people, and God says this, he says, you will indeed, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant promises, this is conditional, if you miss this, you're going to miss the bad news of the gospel, which you need to get to the good news of the gospel, so don't miss the if. If you obey my voice, if you keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the peoples. You shall be to me a holy nation, a nation of saints. So here's what God is saying to Israel. I've called you to holiness, and you are holy, and you will continue to be holy if you can obey my law. If. You can keep my covenant. And they didn't obey. And and they didn't keep their covenant promise. That's kind of the whole story of the Old Testament. 
If you're trying to read the Old Testament and you get lost in Leviticus, you, you know, Genesis, great. You know, we're, I made my way all the way to Leviticus and I got lost. It, this is the lens. This is the lens to which you can read it. God's people cannot obey God's law. They cannot keep their end of the promise. Adam did not walk in holiness. The people of Israel did not walk in holiness. The kings and the priests and the prophets did not walk in holiness. All of this is meant to demonstrate something to us, namely that none of us have the power within ourselves to obey God's voice and keep his covenant promises. When you read the Old Testament, just remember, Israel is me. And Israel didn't have the power. This means that we are hopeless for holiness. Unless. Unless the gospel comes along and gives us even better news than that of the old covenant. Unless our holiness, our sainthood, is grounded in something outside of ourselves, something outside of our ability to perfectly obey. So here's the good news of the gospel right at the beginning of the sermon. The gospel says that you can't get or keep your own holiness. You can't acquire or maintain your own sainthood, not through moral perfection, not through religious observance, not through activism. There's no way you can do it. Therefore, God in his perfect loving kindness came to us in the flesh. And in the person of Jesus, we see a second Adam. In Jesus, we see the better Israel, we see that at every point that those who came before us failed, Jesus succeeded. He did obey the law. He did keep the promise. And it wasn't even hard. It was a joy. It was a pleasure for him to do that. And the hope of the gospel is this, is that we can be made holy in him. Look back at verse 1. I, I want you to see this language. If you, if you saved your place in Philippians, just... Turn right back over there. <laughs> when we read, especially if we're doing a Bible reading plan like many of the sisters in the church are doing right now, this is the part that we just breeze over, right? The long list of names, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, skip that, right? And we also skip the introductory remarks, and then we, you made, you made your way all the way to the end of the book of Romans, and Paul's like, by the way, send greetings to so-and-so, and you're like, yeah, 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 <laughs> right? Don't skip over this. Don't miss these two words. To all of the saints in Christ Jesus. You, you miss the in Christ Jesus? Saints doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any context. Without the in Christ Jesus, it's in myself which obliterates the possibility of being a saint at all. Paul writes this way on purpose. If you have time this afternoon, and I bet you do, but also if you're inclined, just go through Ephesians 1 and 2, and just with a highlighter or a pencil or something, just every time Paul says, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, your whole Bible is going to be marked up. Paul writes like this on purpose. Our sainthood is not grounded in us. It's grounded in Christ. 
Jesus is the only truly holy person that has ever lived. And apart from him, you're right. You can never be a saint. No matter how hard you try. And that is the whole point. Sometimes when I... I remember I was evangelizing this guy one time. And I kept trying to get to the gospel with him. And he kept wanting to talk about his works with me. I'd be like, yeah, but like repentance and faith. He'd be like, yeah, you know, church and Bible study. And I'd be like, yeah, the external righteousness of Christ. And he'd be like, yeah, I feed the poor. Anytime I would try to talk to him about what Christ has done for him, he would try to come back and talk to me about what he's doing for Jesus. Sometimes it feels so hard to get the gospel to people in our context who are so trained up in thinking about our righteousness and our sainthood as being grounded in our abilities and our good works. The whole point of the gospel is that you cannot earn it. Your sainthood, just like every other good gift from the Father, is a gift that is freely given. Does that mean you have no responsibility? No, it does not mean that. Later in the book of Philippians, we're going to see how God's grace calls us to war with our sin and fight to maintain our holiness. But I I just want you to see how important this is for Paul, this emphasis. You're like, Sean, we get it by grace, not by works. You're beating a dead horse. I don't know if a horse can be twice dead, but I'm going to beat it some more. Because that's how important it is. You miss this, you miss everything. A little later in Philippians, in chapter 3, just turn over there with me. Chapter 3, I don't have my verse reference here, so maybe you'll find it. If not, you can just listen. Paul says this. He says that his only hope is to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, you have two, listen, I'm not trying to pick on the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church just has one version of what all false religions have in common. The thing that says you can be reconciled to God through your own efforts, okay? So, you have one vision, the Roman Catholic slash rest of the religions of the world vision, which is work hard, do miracles, be religious, Be zealous, and then you can earn the prized title of saints. That's not the gospel. Repent and believe in Christ and let his holiness be your holiness. That's the gospel. So if you're here this morning and you are a seeker, this is the good news. You just have to receive it by faith. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer, this is also good news. (laughs) You can rest. You can stop trying to earn favor with God. You can stop trying to maintain your prized possession through your good deeds. God doesn't need your good deeds. He needs the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And you can have that by faith. Point number two. At Philippi. At Philippi. So, In point one, we learned about the church being composed of saints, which are not special forces, SEAL Team 6 Christians, but all Christians who are saved by faith. Here in point two, I want you to see that a local church is local. This this point is not going to blow your mind. 
It's kind of like the paperwork that you have to do, but we, we you know, on an otherwise exciting job, but I need you to see that this is here for a reason. Look at verse 1 again. Look at verse 1. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So in, in some of Paul's letters, he refers to more than one church in an area. So when he writes to the Galatians, for example, he writes to the churches of Galatia, meaning that there are probably a few churches in that general geographic region. In 1 Corinthians, Paul sends greetings from all the churches in Asia. Okay? All these different churches, they send you their love, their greetings. In this letter, Paul is addressing one church. One church, the church at Philippi. Philippi was a city in the region of Macedonia. And at this point uh, of, of Paul's mission, we assume that there's only one church in this city. Now, to refer to a church in this way feels a little weird to us, right? Because we are blessed to live in a city with so many churches. If you were to say the church at Decatur, Alabama, people would say, which church, right? But referring to a local church with geographical markers is still fairly common in much of the unreached world today. So when, when we were missionaries in Peru, we would refer to La Iglesia de Esperanza. It was the only church in the village known as Esperanza, and they didn't call themselves The Brook or The Vine or some other really cool name. They didn't have branding we referred to them by the name of their location, and that's still very common on the mission field today. You very often find villages or even entire cities with just one single church. Now, I want to make a connection here between point one and point two. The church at Philippi is referred to as the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi because that's what a local church is. A local church is a collection of saints who have agreed to gather in one particular area, right? There are two, this is overly simplified, but just stay with me. There, there are two basic ways to think about the church. You have the universal church, right? The universal church is composed of all believers all over the world. China, Indonesia, South America, Decatur, Alabama, even Lawrence County. That's the, the universal church, the global body of Christ. And, and the New Testament glories in the reality of the universal church. But not at length. Not at length. The references to the local church in the New Testament outnumber the references to the global church or the universal church in the New Testament 10 to 1. More often than not, when the New Testament talks about the church, it is referring to the local church. Why? Because the local church is where the rubber meets the road. It's where the kingdom of God manifests on the earth. Have you ever thought about what's happening on a Sunday morning in those terms? Right? We are an outpost of heaven. We were all scattered throughout the week, and then we came together as one body and manifested the presence of Christ in his heavenly kingdom in this place. The New Testament talks about the local church so much because that's where you do all of the churchy things that the Bible says you're supposed to do. All those one another commands in the New Testament, you're probably not going to do most of that with the universal church. 
You might do some of them. You'll, you'll pray for those who are oppressed in China. You know, you, you might send, uh, as our church did a couple of weeks ago, relief funds to Christians who are suffering a tragedy in Turkey or Syria, right? You, you, you do stuff like that. But mainly, all of the one another commands, they happen in the local church. If you're going to grieve with those who grieve, you're probably going to do it with people who are grieving in your local congregation. If you rejoice with those who are rejoicing, you're probably going to do that most often and most intensely with those that you are part of the same church with, right? The local church is where we practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? And this is also where pastors and deacons lead and serve. That doesn't mean a pastor never serves outside of his local church. And never, it doesn't mean that a deacon never meets any needs outside of the local congregation. They can and they do. But the vast majority of what I do and what the elders do and what Tim does, the vast majority of that happens right here in this body. So when Paul writes to churches, he certainly does tell them to remember, to care for, to pray for churches beyond their four walls. But most of his instruction is about how they should live life together as a local congregation. And here is my application point for you, and it's not that deep. Focus on the local church. The Lord has not called you to exist in all places at all times. The Lord has called you to Decatur, or maybe you're in Hartzell, or Priceville, or Madison, or Huntsville, the point is the Lord has called you here. Don't let the internet deceive you. You can't be everywhere at all times. You can't meet everyone's needs. You can't be emotionally and spiritually invested as well as you are here in this church with churches all the way across the globe. God puts you here in this place at this time so you can serve these people with your gifts and let them serve you. Focus on the local church. Point number three. This is not a very good title for a point, but here it is. All. A-L-L. All. And that's the point where you're supposed to, you guys, you're supposed to say, oh, Sean, that's, that's fine. It's good. No? Okay. All right. Point three, I want to draw your attention to something perhaps even a little bit more obscure. Look at verse 1 again. Paul says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The, the one thing I want you to see here, it has to do with church unity. And I want to tell you, I, I, I could be wrong about this. I could, I could be wrong about this. I try not to say stuff from the pulpit that I haven't like, that I'm not like 100% sure that like, I'm definitely, on last day for sure, I'm good to go on this one. Uh, I don't think I am, though. You know, I'm going to show you why. Look at, look at chapter 4, verse 2. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. <coughs> Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Synthache to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So it appears that there are two women in the church who had a relational impasse. We don't, we don't know the details behind this relational rift. Paul doesn't tell us. But we know that there is significant disagreement between two women who Paul says are faithful 
gospel laborers. But here's what's really cool. They're in the same church. They're still together. The disagreement's real. It's real enough that it's gotten back to Paul. You would think that the guy who planted your church who's in prison, who's probably going to die soon, you wouldn't really want to bother him with like minor petty squabbles in the church. You know, Joan parked in my, they sat in my pew, you know, the coffee was cold. By the way, how did you, how's the coffee this morning? Good guys? (laughs) So this must be pretty significant to get back to Paul's ears. And yet they're still in the same church. Part of that is because in God's providence, what else could they do? It's not like Synthike could just wash her hands of the church and move her membership to First Baptist Philippi. They are First Baptist Philippi. Emphasis on Baptist, amen? amen? There's nowhere for these sisters to go. There's no other church to join. Guess what? The Bible says, forgive one another, bear with one another. And they have no other choice. They have to figure it out. They need the Spirit's help. That doesn't mean they don't need Paul's instruction as well. I don't want to preach that whole sermon before we get there, but here's why I'm pointing that out to you now. I think that this relational tension in the church, this potential church faction, is informing the way Paul begins his letter. It informs the way Paul addresses the church. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. I'm not siding with one faction. I'm not siding with another. I believe that even though Christians have disagreements and sometimes serious disagreements, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And I'm not going to show preference to one side or the other. I'm writing to all of those who have been saved by Christ. This is just a good mentality for us to have, friends. For us to remember that even if we have disagreements with other saints in the church, it's not as if in God's mind there is, even if we're right, some kind of preference. It's not as, it's not as if God has come to, you know, sort of view us as like having tiers within the church. You know, there's tier A. Those are the people who are always right about everything all the time. I'd like to think that I would be in that tier. And then tier B, people who are right about most things most of the time, but sometimes they're off on stuff. And then there's tier C. These are the people who are the headaches, the problems. They just can't get it all together. No. When God thinks about this local church, Sixth Avenue Community Church, all he sees is the blood of Jesus. All he sees is the holiness of his son, Jesus Christ. So maybe we should act like that's true. Point number four. <clears throat> with the overseers and deacons. With the overseers and deacons. Uh, this church at Philippi, like every other local church, is a three-layer cake. Now, that is two three-layered illustrations back-to-back. I did not mean for that to happen. But think about it like this. One layer, the base layer, is the congregation, the saints. Okay. Now, the top layer of the cake... The most important layer is King Jesus. He's the head of the church. But the middle layer, that's the leadership layer. In the middle layer, we find two offices, overseers and deacons. Let's take them one at a time, okay? First, overseers. We don't use 
the word overseer very much in modern English, but another translation of that word could be bishop. And in Protestant churches, we don't really use the word bishop very often because our Roman Catholic and Anglican friends have confused the daylights out of people with the way that they have ordered the church and used that word in a way that's not entirely biblical. So I want to show you what is the biblical way to think about how this word is used. Turn with me to the book of Titus real quick. Titus. Chapter 1. Verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> okay. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So what you see in these verses is that in one breath, Paul, speaking of the same office, the same person who needs to be qualified to do this work of the ministry. First, Paul refers to him as an elder, and the next breath, Paul refers to him as a bishop. Why? Because they're synonymous. I want to show you this from one other place. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Okay, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. We read, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So we see that this, is, this has to do with elders, this whole section. Now go down to verse 28. Speaking to the elders of the church, right before his departure, Paul says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, bishops. Same thing as in the book of Titus. And then, next he says this. He says to shepherd, in your ESV translations, it might say to care for the church of God. But if you look in the Greek, it's the same Greek word that's here in Philippians. It's the same Greek word that's there in Titus. It is the word bishop, or it's the verb form of that, right? So to to, to sh- or excuse me, this is actually pastor, to pastor for the church of God. So what you see here is that at the beginning he, he refers to elders, and then next he refers to them as bishops, and then after that he uses the verb form to refer to pastors. This is a classic text that's used by New Testament scholars to teach us who don't read very much Greek and who have sometimes trouble putting these things together, that, that pastor, bishop, and elder are all synonymous in the New Testament. They all just refer to the same thing. In American evangelical churches, we tend to say pastor or elder, but it's all the same thing. Wasn't that fun? That was fun. Now, now that we understand the verbiage, let's talk about their job description. What do elders do? 
Well, what we see in verse 28 here in the book of Acts is that the big picture of shepherding, of pastoring, is to shepherd, to, to pastor or care for the flock of God. So the elders, the bishops, the pastors at Philippi are called to care for the saints at Philippi. Now go back to, uh, close to Titus, go to 1 Timothy with me. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. We read, let the elders who rule, and that word could also be translated as govern, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So what we see in this verse is that the elders are called to rule or govern the church. Now, that might scare you, especially as Americans, you know, ooh, that sounds too much like a king, you know, don't tread on me, that kind of a thing, right? But what we see from the rest of the New Testament is that the kind of ruling that elders do in the church is not the way that pagan emperors rule over a nation, it's the way that Christ rules over his church. How does Christ rule over his church? In love, sacrificially, laying down his life. Peter says it like this, talking to the elders of the church that he's writing to, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, that's the same idea, govern, rule, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, listen to these words, not domineering over those in your charge, but rather being examples to the flock. So that's, that's the kind of ruling or governing that pastors are called to do in the church. It's our job. Now, if you were to ask a CEO who runs a, a Fortune 500 company, how, how do you run the company? What sort of tools do you have at your disposal to move the company in the direction that it should go, to make sure everything is happening the way that it should? Right? He might say, oh, I have this tool, and I, I use this, and I, I do that, and you know, ask Trevor later or anybody who knows anything about business but me. If you were to ask a pastor, how do you govern the church? How do you rule the church? How do you move the church in the direction that it should go? The answer would be through preaching and teaching. And teaching could sort of just be the overarching theme, and then underneath that, there's different kinds of teaching. There's public ministry of the word, preaching, Bible studies. Then there's private ministry of the word, right? But the idea is through authoritative pastoral teaching. So go back to Titus with me. It should be right there, right? right, Two books after 1 Timothy. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. <clears throat> Speaking of this qualified pastor in the church, Paul says this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, that's the gospel and all of its implications, so that he may be able to Give instruction. That's teaching. Teaching. Give instruction in sound doctrine. That is what we believe and how we ought to live in light of what we believe. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, the pastor's job is to shepherd the church. How does he shepherd the church? What are the tools? What are the instruments? What are the means by which he accomplishes his end of governing the church? 
This is it. That and prayer. The ministry of the word and prayer. Ministry of the word is him going, here's what I can do. I'm going to take God's word and I'm going to give it to you. And hopefully, if you're saints, if you, if you say you believe God's word, you're going to do it. I can't make you do it. I can't. You're all here by your own personal consent, right? Right? Blink twice if you're in danger, right? You're all here. You chose to be here. Nobody forced you to be here. You're here under, why are you here? Because you trust that the leader, in one sense, you trust that the leaders are just going to faithfully tell you what God has said, and because you want to do what God has said, you're going to do it. That's our tool. That's how we govern the church. Now let's talk about the deacons. This will be shorter, not because deacons are not important, not because their work isn't valuable, but just because there tends to be less confusion about deacons, okay? So uh, some of us have come from churches with no deacons. Raise your hand if you've ever been a member of a church without deacons. Throw it up there. Hi, throw it high so I and everyone else can see it. Good for you, not, not many, okay. That's a tragedy. Deacons are a gift to the church. God doesn't give the office of deacon to the church for nothing. Then there are churches who have deacons that run the church. They govern the church. They rule the church. They, they usurp the authority of the pastors. And sometimes that's because pastors have abdicated their authority. Either way, sometimes there are churches where deacons do the job of pastors. Raise your hand if you've ever been a member of a church like that. Okay. In contrast to that, the biblical picture of a deacon is one who has delegated authority from the pastors to do three things. Serve the mercy needs of the church and perhaps even the surrounding community. Protect the unity of the church and free up the elders of the church so that they can be fully focused on the ministry of word and prayer. If you want to read more about that, I'd encourage you to go read Acts chapter 6 in your devotionals. While I'm here, let me just say, if you want uh, an example of what that looks like, look no further than the men who have served as deacons in this church. Uh, Tim Norton is an excellent deacon, and the thing about his work is that you guys don't really see a lot of it, but uh, the elders do, and let me just, and his wife does, (laughs) because he's here instead of at home uh, on, on some of these occasions, and uh, he is just an excellent example of what it looks like to serve the church. But also Spencer Miller, who's not a deacon at the moment, you know, he, he did the same thing. And, and he stepped up to be a deacon in the life of our church when I would not have wished that on my enemy. You know, it was a very tough time to be a deacon, and he did it, and he did it well. So if you haven't stopped to not only thank God for your deacons recently, or if you haven't thanked your deacon uh, recently, today might be a good day. I expect Tim's text messages and emails and and maybe even his mailbox to be flooded with thanksgiving from the church and uh maybe like a gift card for megan or something megan like hobby lobby gift cards that would be good okay now i I hope you notice that paul writes about the church in philippi as if it has more than one elder and deacon it does there's a language of plurality here pastor phil newton is fond of saying that a church should have plural elders who shepherd the church and plural deacons who serve the church. And if you're like, Sean, we only have one deacon. I'm like, yeah, I know. You should probably step up. And Tim, do you need help? Okay, then. (laughs) All righty, there you go. Who wants to serve? 
Now, the next question that you may have in your mind is how do the elders and the deacons of the church relate to one another? So, in his fantastic book on deacons, which if you're interested in becoming a deacon, I will give to you and expect you to read, Matt Smethurst says it like this, elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, and the congregation does ministry, okay? Or we could, we could parse it out like this, all members of the church are called to ministry, every single one of us. For starters, we are all called to the ministry of the word. We read it earlier in our service. All members of the church, all the saints of God are called to speak the truth of God's word to one another in love, and so build up the body of Christ. The elders in the church show us how word ministry should be done. They are the example. What does word ministry look like? They set the way. In the same way, all members of the church are called to ministry of service. Not the same service. We have different gifts, but we are all called to service like Christ came as a servant. The deacons of the church lead the way in showing us what that service should look like. They set the example. And it is precisely because the role of deacon is service-oriented and not ruling-oriented that so many Christians throughout church history have called women to serve as deacons, even as they reserve the role of elders for men per the clear teachings of Scripture. Now, lest you think, oh, women, deacons, that's just a liberal, feminist encroachment on the Bible. Well, there's this guy named John Chrysostom. He was a pastor in A.D. 349 to 407, and he appointed female deacons. I don't think he was under the influence of feminism. There was Jerome, who shepherded in Rome during the same time. The rhyming is just a coincidence, a happy coincidence. And he appointed female deacons. Old Test, uh, excuse me, church history is replete with examples of women serving as deacons. John Calvin, ooh, that old squish, that old liberal, he appointed female deacons in Geneva. Charles Spurgeon, another classic example of a guy who was soft on gender roles. In the 1800s, he appointed female deacons. And then the biggest squish of them all, John MacArthur, in his church has appointed female deacons. Uh, our church doesn't have female deacons, and we have not made a formal decision to vote on this matter as a church yet, but that's probably going to come down the pipeline, and we're probably going to have a discussion about it, and we're probably going to make a decision together as a church whether or not we agree that th there can be female deacons in the life of the church. And uh, if you have any questions about that, I have a big old packet you can come and get it's the same packet that the elders and I read and worked through this question together to make sure we were of one mind. You can come and ask, that, uh, ask those questions and, and read those resources as well. Let me summarize the, the relationship like this. Let me put a bow on it. Elders serve the church by leading, and deacons lead the church by serving. Okay. Now, before we move on, there's one more thing I want you to see here in verse 1. I want you to see the word with. Let's go back to the book of Philippians. <clears throat> to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. This word with is so crucial. It's so crucial. A church is not a hierarchical institution wherein the leaders exist outside of the life 
of the congregation. They are not on a pedestal. They do not have separate accountability structures. They do not have a life that is in some way disconnected from this local congregation. In order for you to really see this, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Right there in verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you. Among you. There it is again. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Among you. What you see here is that elders exercise oversight over the flock even as they exist among the flock. It's not over or among. It's over and among. And I know sometimes, if, how do you hold those two things in tension? Well, you just believe the Bible. There it is. Over and among. Pastors and deacons should on the one hand be held in high esteem among the saints. 1 Thessalonians, Paul says you should honor those who serve you. The book of Hebrews says you should obey those who lead you. So on and so forth. And yet, you have to do so in such a way that recognizes that they are sheep just like you. And the same thing is true for those who are leaders. We must lead from a position of over and among, not just over. Never just over. That's when all kinds of bad things happen. That's when we lose doctrinal and gospel fidelity. That's when abuse begins to creep into the church. That's when we put our own souls at risk. I don't know if this counts as application for this point, but I think it's just a good place for us to stop and celebrate God's grace in the life of our church. For those of you who have been members here for a while, doesn't it just feel like this is true? Doesn't this just feel like our life together? Like, yes, our leaders, we love them, we value them, we respect them, we esteem them, we obey them, insofar as they're pointing us to God's word. And yet also, they just feel like one of us. Like, I just think about the elders in this church, and they feel like us. And I say that as an elder. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I don't think I'm projecting that. I mean, it just feels like, as an elder in this church, I just feel like I'm one of the sheep. And uh, it takes a lot of grace to strike that balance, and I pray that we can continue to do that in the future. Finally, point number five. I'm sorry. I'm almost done. (laughs) Grace and peace in Christ. (coughs) Finally, we come to the benediction or the blessing. Go back to Philippians chapter one. Look at verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This kind of blessing is offered at the beginning and the end of all of Paul's letters. They sort of function as bookends. John Piper says that Paul writes this way because of how the gospel works for those who hear it by faith. He says that grace comes to us through speaking of the gospel 
And then after we have talked about it, after we've meditated on it, after we've stewed in the gospel, we are left with grace. So as Paul opens up his letter, he's giving the Philippians grace as he he tells them, you should expect as we begin to think about the gospel together, you should be expecting God's grace to come and flow out to you, right? And there's another place in Paul's writings where he says, I expect you to abound in grace, right? There's this idea that grace isn't just static. It's not like just a a pie that you have to make last. No, grace comes to you in the person and work of Christ Jesus at your salvation, and then it can abound more and more. And I, I really hope you know, brothers and sisters, that the same grace that Paul expects the Philippians to receive as they study this letter, that grace is being extended to us in this local church as we continue to study this letter together. The grace of the gospel in both its content and application is flowing out of this letter and into your life even now by faith. Now, sometimes we talk about things like grace and peace And when we talk about these things, when we think about these things, our our thoughts can become very conceptual, very abstract. But as Paul writes this letter, and as he talks about these concepts, he's, he's writing like these concepts have teeth. They bite into the reality of our lives. In order to see that, let me just show you in chapter 1, verse 7. Paul, talking about grace, says it like this. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. And then what is that grace? He goes on, he says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So so the grace that Paul extends right at the outset of this letter has teeth. It's the grace that allows you to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's the grace that allows you to preach the gospel. It's the grace that allows you to defend the gospel. When Paul talks about grace, he's not talking like some airheaded youth pastor. He's talking like someone who is about to die for Christ. Teeth. That's the kind of grace that's coming to you in this letter. The grace that you get with the gospel. Not cheap grace, not light grace, but weighty, real, gritty, sticky grace. It's the kind of thing that keeps you going when your marriage is failing, when your children die, when you get cancer. Grace with titanium teeth that bite down into the harsh reality of life in this fallen world. The soil is so hard, you think nothing can penetrate it until grace comes and sinks its teeth into the flesh of your soul. And then there's peace. And listen, if you think grace is sometimes treated like this airy, fluffy, non-entity by some Christians, the concept of peace is even more diminished. It's been watered down with thoughts that are more owing to Eastern mysticism than biblical Christianity. It's been watered down with airy, evangelical sentiment. The biblical concept of peace has lost its power to many of us, but not in the book of Philippians. Turn with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4. 
verses 6 and 7. Guys, I, I just hope that you're stunned by this. You should be. You should be stunned by this. Do not be anxious about anything. Anything. Okay? So this is, doesn't matter if you're like, you never feel anxious, you don't, you're just not an anxious person, or you're like the most anxious person in the church. If this is a pass-fail test, we all fail. We all fail. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace that we receive in the gospel is a peace that puts anxiety to death. It's, it's a peace that doesn't make sense in this world. He says it surpasses all understanding. It's the kind of peace that when people see you with it, it doesn't make sense to them. And friends, we need this kind of peace. It's a big part of our Christian witness. When the whole world is running around with their hair on fire, we have peace. America's going to collapse, we have peace. The housing market's down, we have peace. Relational strife, racial tensions, COVID stuff, we have peace. We need it. So how do these concepts of grace and peace relate to one another? Paul always pairs them together. You notice that? Why does he always do that? Well, there's an order of operations here, and I'll give it to you. The order is this. Grace comes first, then peace. Or you might say that grace is the source, and then peace is the result. The grace of God produces the peace of God. Friends, that's the story of the gospel, right? You had no peace with God. You were rebels. We were lost in our sin. We were running away from God and his peaceful abode. We left the garden due to our own sin and rebellion. But then the grace of God came to us. And when the grace of God came to us, he gave us peace with God and with one another once again. So you might say that grace is the root and peace is the fruit. Friends, I want you to know that you can know peace in this life and the life hereafter. I was trying to think this week, how can, I, how can I bring this to life? What story can I tell? What illustration can I draw from a novel? What part of the Bible can I go to and, and bring the reality of this gospel peace to life for our congregation? And then I thought, I, I don't have to do that. Just look around the room. Consider your other church members. Talk to the mothers in our church who have had multiple miscarriages. Talk to the fathers who have lost sons. Talk to those who have looked cancer in the face on more than one occasion and found nothing terrifying there when they did. Talk to the Catherine Burgers, the Susan Stewarts, the Michael Waws, the Dan Finks in this church. The peace that Paul says is coming to us in the gospel is not abstract. It's not living out there in the clouds somewhere. You don't need a guru who's going to have her book featured on Oprah in order to find this peace. It's here. It's alive and well in our church even today. And it is one of the greatest evidences that God has in fact made us holy. How can you know that you're really a saint? 
not that you never worry, we're all going to worry, but beneath that, is there a deep-seated peace in Jesus Christ? In ancient Rome, these Philippians, they would have been promised a certain kind of peace from Caesar. That was kind of their whole propaganda machine. Caesar would go in and he'd be like, listen, things can be really bad, or you can have the peace that comes from me ruling over you. You'll get roads, you'll get a mail system, you'll get protection. I am the Lord. I can give you peace. And so Paul writes, and he wants the Philippians to know that there's only one true peace. Trimper Longman says it like this. He says that the peace offered by Caesar is built on the backs of conquered people. It comes through oppression, religious crackdowns, impoverishing taxation. But the peace of Christ comes through his sacrificial death driven by his love for the lost. So in closing, I just want you to know, friends, that where you look to for your peace says a lot about who you belong to. I really hope you know that no earthly government can give you peace. I really do. Even the best, most just government in the world can only offer you gruel in comparison to the eternal peace of God in Christ. And listen, if that's true, if the government itself can't offer you peace, and that means that these politicians, these political figures, these talking heads, they can't give you peace, even if they're right and they make a lot of sense, you know? You think Ron DeSantis is going to give you peace? You think Ben Shapiro is going to be the one to give you the peace you need? Think again. Only true peace comes to us through Christ Jesus, and he does not have a contract with a daily wire. If you're looking to a particular pastor or a theologian, or religious tradition, or a right ordering of doctrine to give you peace, you won't find it there either. Don't look to me. I can't even give my wife peace most of the time. It can only be found in Christ. I, I want you to see, before we end, I, I want you to see how Christ-centered these first two verses are. In verse 1, Paul identifies himself as a slave of Christ. Then Paul addresses the believers at Philippi as saints in Christ. And then in verse 2, he talks about the grace and peace that comes to us from God through Christ. The church of Jesus Christ, in one sense, is nothing more than an extension of Christ himself. We are the body of Christ. He lives in us we live in him. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says it like this, we are the house and Christ is the foundation, which is why we're going to sing our final song together this morning as Luke comes up to lead us. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. To him be glory in the church throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand.